Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Now we launch our journey into the book called Acts. The full title of the book is Acts of the Apostles, but I really think it would be better titled Acts of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit is really more of a focus than the apostles are. This is volume two of Luke's narrative, his explanation to a person named Theophilus. Remember that Luke was a Gentile believer and a physician who ministered with Paul and was also from Antioch. The events in the book of Acts are going to cover those from around 30 to 33 AD to 56 or 57. There are a large number of manuscripts for this book that are available. Two versions appear quite early in the history of the church, but that large number of manuscripts and their variations make it the hardest New Testament text to recreate and hope we got it accurately. Let's jump into chapter 1. Remember that the number 40 is very commonly used. Um, We have the 40 days that Jesus is tested in the wilderness, the 40 days of the flood. Sometimes the number 40 is used as an idiom for a very long time, longer than a month. So you've had a full cycle of the moon and the calendar pass, but not so long as a year. So um, the believers have been waiting around 40 days They're told to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The time has come for Jesus to ascend back into heaven, and the believers who are gathered ask Jesus a question that is an Israeli nationalist and an eschatological question, or eschatological means end times having to do with the end times and final coming. Once again, they're still not completely understanding the role of the Messiah. Jesus refuses them an answer to that question in the way that they're wanting. Instead, he creates widening circles of influence. There are not nationalist boundaries to the kingdom of God. Two angels appear after Jesus ascends, and they basically say to the believers, go get busy. Don't just keep standing here. Um, stop standing here looking around. Go do Go do the work that He's given you to do, and I believe Jesus still says that to us today. They elect Matthias to replace Judas. They want to have 12 uh, primary disciples. 12 is an administrative number, so they choose another disciple by casting lots, which was a very common um, way to elect leaders or decide who should do something. These 12 administrative disciples will be overseers. They will be the ones leading the group. And we know from the book of Acts that in order to be one of these 12, you needed to have been with Jesus from the beginning since his baptism. So this tells us that the circle of people who followed Jesus faithfully throughout his ministry was larger than just the 12 with which we had been familiar. 
There are two alternate stories of what happened to Judas. One says he went out and hanged himself. One says he basically jumps off a cliff and bursts open at the bottom. Some reconcile those two by saying he hung himself um, and that eventually as the body decayed, he falls and bursts open. I know that's gross, but it's part of the story and the narrative. In chapter two, we have the events of Pentecost. Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. There are 120 people gathered. This is around 10 days after Jesus ascended. I'm going to point out that it says there was a sound like the rush of a mighty wind. It doesn't say there was actually a wind. There may or may not have been tongues of fire descend and rest on each one. This kind of levels the playing field between the 12 and the 120. They all equally receive the Holy Spirit. There are still those who are going to be leaders, but they are all anointed, called, and gifted to be in ministry, to do the work that is coming. When the Holy Spirit comes on them, they speak with other language. Um, compare this with 1 Corinthians twelve fourteen. They are recognized as being Galileans. Um, it may be because of their accent. It may be because of differences in their dress that they have. But everyone is hearing in their own language. Peter stands up and preaches a sermon. The sermon that we have captured here in chapter 2 was probably inserted later. It has very elementary theology to it. It's more of a story rather than the fully developed theology that we see later. These events of Pentecost are happening at 9 a.m., yet there are people who think this is a group of people already drunk. Their excitement, they're speaking in multiple languages, um, the way they come pouring out of the room with this story, their excitement leads them to think that they are already intoxicated. Paul confronts these accusations and uses it as an opportunity to share the gospel. He connects what is happening with Scripture, particularly Joel 2, verses 28 through 31. There are really two speeches offered here. One is chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. The second one is verses 22 through 36. He may have taken a break between. Um, he may have just had a pause, or it may just represent two thematic portions of what he had to say. Those who hear Peter's speech, his sermon, are moved. They experience conviction, and the first converts occur, about 3,000 of them. That's a pretty significant revival and an incredible jump forward for the church. Think about the discipling and the teaching that will need to happen afterwards by this group of 120 for 3,000 new converts. In order to make this happen, they continue doing what they had been doing. They are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is what we are still supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be devoting ourselves to teaching Scripture and how the Holy Spirit brings it alive to doctrine that has come down to us through the church, to fellowship, to getting to know and care and love 
one another as the family of God. The breaking of bread symbolizes our sacraments. We engage in religious rituals that are helpful to us and the sacraments of Holy Communion and baptism and to prayer. Those are the four things that define a church and a body of believers. There are many, many signs and wonders that accompany what is going on here. We don't see them well-defined in this particular portion, but they are felt as extensions of Jesus' work. Jesus' ministry continues in His followers. They share what they have with those in need. They have glad and generous hearts. They are free. They no longer feel a sense to hoard or to control or to climb for power. They share their faith openly with others, and they are respected for the way they live their lives and the way they operate. And it says that this brings in more converts day by day. I still believe that when we share of what God has blessed us with, We will find people who are receptive to hearing why we do that because of Jesus Christ. It will not only get us respect in the community, but it will bring people to Jesus. Chapter 3, we see that we move from worship and discipleship to ministry in the world. Peter and John are going to continue their ministry. They're going to heal a lame man who's been lame from birth. This story depicts Peter almost in the same way that we have seen Jesus. But the man praises God, not Peter and John, um, which is exactly what we want to see happen. The healing is questioned in chapter 4. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death or in the possibility of resurrection. Peter and John end up being arrested, but more people come to believe, and now we have 5,000 new converts. They are recognized as being uneducated. They have not been formally temple trained. They are not part of the sects of the Pharisees or Sadducees. They are recognized as companions of Jesus, but they are impressed by their knowledge and the way they are able to share what it is that they believe. Peter and John are ordered to stop preaching, but they politely decline. The They have to do what God is telling them to do, not what men tell them to do. I love the fact that the believers pray for boldness and not protection. Their prayers are answered, as we see in verse 31. Believers are united in their purpose. They have one heart and one soul, and this unity brings great power and great grace. This picture that is portrayed here really has a utopian sound. They are sharing. They are humble. And we have two examples here. One is of Barnabas, a positive example of him sharing and being enormously generous. And then we see Ananias and Sapphira which is a negative example. They want all of the admiration that came to Barnabas, but they don't want to actually make the same sacrifice. So they lie and pretend. So even though we get a utopian appearance presented to us, we see that all is not well. There are still immature, selfish um, people among the believers from the very beginning. 
In chapter 5, verse 11, we have the first use of the word ecclesia, which is the word for church. It just means um, a group that is called together for a purpose. It's used of other groups in ancient Greece, but it has really come to be translated church for us in Scripture. They're meeting in Solomon's portico, which is a part of the temple. This location shows that they have absolutely disregarded the instructions to stop this preaching that they were given from the council. The reactions continue to be mixed. There will always be mixed responses to the gospel. We see in verse 15 of chapter 5 that even Peter's shadow heals. Um, This feels a little odd to some of us. It is an unusual act of healing that underscores the divine power that is present with Peter, who is seen as the leader of this whole movement. Um, You can compare this, look back at uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 54. The persecution also continues, and this time it continues because of jealousy. But an angel releases them from prison. They don't run. They don't run away and hide. They simply go right back to doing what they were doing. And I love how they affirm again in verse 29 that they must obey God rather than any human authority. Our first allegiance is always to God. Now the group wants to kill them. If they can't get them arrested and they can't intimidate them into shutting up, then let's just kill them. Gamaliel defends and keeps them from doing that. He is Paul's rabbinic instructor. We know this from Acts chapter 22, verse 3. We also know that Jesus was not the only so-called Messiah of the time. There arose others who felt like they were messiahs, who were labeled messiahs, and all of those rebellions were put down. Gamaliel is basically saying, don't make a martyr out of what may be a minor kind of thing, but it does save Peter and John's life, most likely. Instead, they simply beat them with rods. That's called flogging. They're not scourged. Scourging would include straps that had bits of bone and rocks that would have actually torn their skin. This is just a whipping. Um, But they rejoice in the fact that they are suffering and they are not deterred at all. In chapter 6, we see the origin of the diaconate ministry. There are multiple groups of people already within the church. There is always differences between people. A church is never going to be a single homogenous group. There are the Hellenists, which are the Greek-speaking Jews, and then there are the Hebrews, who are the Aramaic-speaking Jews. Right now, the church is primarily Jewish believers, Jewish converts. So there's a disagreement between the Greek-speaking and the Aramaic-speaking. The the Greek-speaking are accusing the Hebrews of being bigoted, condescending, and discriminating, and not taking care of those among the Greek-speaking who need the help the way they are. They're favoring. They're favoring the Hebrew speakers. The apostles need help. They recognize that they cannot do it all. There are too many expectations and the same amount of time belongs to everybody. The administrative tasks and the the ministry outreach tasks, which are both good things, can actually push out time to prepare for gospel teaching, which is also important. 
So they recognize they're going to need some help. Some say they hear a condescending attitude among the apostles. I don't really hear that. I hear an acknowledgement that no one person can do everything that needs to be done. No pastor can do every aspect of ministry without help unless you have a very, very tiny congregation. Um, It talks about uh, to dance is to be merry. Um, This may imply that there is, is some drinking going on. We don't know for sure. But they choose seven deacons. Um, The leadership is drawn from among those who are in the group that are claiming they're being discriminated against. This is wisdom as well. Put those who think things are not happening fairly in charge of being sure that it happens fairly. Now you make them part of the solution instead of just the outside criticism, which is why when people come to me and complain about something, I'm usually looking at them. So tell me what what role you want to play in solving this problem. Stephen, who is named here as one of the seven, is going to be stoned in just a just a little bit, and Paul's going to hold his cloak, hold the cloaks of the people who stone him. Chapter six, verse six refers to ordination of deacons. They are commissioned; they lay hands on them and set them apart for this work, which is what ordination means: laying on of hands and setting apart. Um, Stephen gets himself arrested. He's not just serving, he's also healing and preaching. He has a wide range of ministries. Our ministries and our individual particular calls all look different, and they may land in several buckets of what we do as ministers of the gospel, as people who follow Christ. Debates develop with unbelieving Jews, and we see the animosity beginning to creep up with what once had been Full support is now rubbing a little too hard on those who don't accept it. In chapter 7, we are going to see Stephen stoned. I told you that was coming. Stephen's speech is the longest one in the book of Acts. Um, He quotes or alludes to an absolute ton of Scripture in his speech. Um, He then is stoned to death, and Saul, who eventually becomes Paul, stands, watches, and approves, and holds the cloaks of those who are doing it. And that brings us to the conclusion of chapter 7.